broken Do you feel the shadows deepen But do you know that all the darkness stopped the light from getting through Do you wish that you could see it all made new creation groaning but is a new creation coming and is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst is it good that we remind ourselves of this stand I want you to lift your hands and I want you to lift your eyes toward heaven hit me the key of G if you will just sing this chorus to me and I want it to be a praise from you now you've spent some time listening to others saying I want you to sing to the Lord sing this oh how Oh, how 
how I love Jesus so how I love Jesus because he first loved me say it again and know how I love Jesus. I love Him, oh, how I Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. I'm singing, oh, I love him, I love him. I'm not ashamed to tell somebody, oh, how it's because he first loved me. Sing it this way to me, he is so wonderful to me. Just the voices, oh, how I love Jesus. And oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love If you love him, give him a great big hand clap of praise. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen and amen. You can be seated today. As you're seated, turn in your Bibles to Acts 16, verse 4 and 5. Acts chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. Amen. We've been talking on the last... Uh, Three Sundays past, and today is the conclusion of our series on it. We've been talking about the Acts of West Ward. You, of course, recall that we posited the idea that if someone were to do like Luke wrote, the actions of the uh, early church, you know, he wrote a gospel, the Gospel of Luke, and that was the actions of Jesus. And then he wrote a companion volume called the Acts or the Actions of the Apostles. It could be called the Actions of Jesus' body that he left here on the earth. The, Jesus is the head of the body and we are the body of Christ. 
somebody were to write the actions of Wes Ward, what would it read like? What would it read like? And I think that's an important question. Here's the thing about it, it's still being written. So if we don't like what the story would be written right now, we can change what's being, what would be written if they wrote that book. We can, we can make a change uh, by the glory of God and, and for the grace of God. So today, we were, or first week, we were talking about getting. We used ACTS as an uh, acronym, and we said that that was a call to seek, that we were called by God to seek the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Ghost to accomplish the work for which he's called us uh, to, uh, to do. And then we talked about, uh, of course, uh, giving, how that that was a commitment to serve, that we serve each other, that that's part of what the Holy Spirit does in us. It causes us to want to give and to, to share and to serve one another. And then last week we talked about, uh, of course, uh, going the importance of going, that we have a commission from the Lord to go into all the world and preach the gospel of uh, the kingdom. And of course, that was a commission to share. And today, we're on this idea of growing. And that's a chance to shine. You say, well, you think we ought to shine? Yes, that's what the Bible says about the church, that we are a city set on a hill, right? whose light cannot be hidden. In fact, did you know the Bible says we're the light of the world? You say, wait a second, hold on. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Yeah, he did. He said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you're the light of the world. Because we have his light within us and we're to let it shine. We're not to hide it under, you know, a bushel basket. We're not to put it in the closet. Not to hide it under the bed. We're to let our light shine before men. And so whenever we share the gospel and we let our light shine before men, people are drawn to the light of the gospel like a moth to the flame. And so the Lord uh, has called us not just to be a, a getting church and not just to be a giving church and not even just a going church. God expects, He does expect a return on His investment. He does expect us to be a growing church. And that's what we're looking at today. Acts 6, 4, and 5. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. We're preaching on growing, a chance to shine. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we offer this time to you. We offer this word to you. We're asking you to use it. For the glory of Almighty God, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Would you just give the Lord one more praise for His Word today? What kind of church do you want? Now, that's an interesting question because for some people, for many people, they feel like that's an invitation to shop around, don't they? You know, I know that probably every community feels this way, but most of the preachers that I talk to say that Coffee County and Douglas is one of the worst places that they've ever seen for people church hopping. And church hopping often comes about because people are church shopping. So when people say, what kind of church do you want? They think that means I'm to go out and find the kind of church that I want, and when I find it, I'll be a part of it. Here's the problem with that. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> Amen. Right? Because there are none. When we say what kind of church do we want, we shouldn't automatically think somebody out there is offering a product. We should say, you know what? I'm born again. I'm part of the church. And what kind of person do I want to be? Because the kind of person that I am if other people are that same kind of person, you know the old quotation, if every person in this church were just like me, what kind of church would this church be? Right? That's an interesting thing to ponder. So what kind of church do we want? Well, do we want a huge church? Now, I know people that have a mindset that says, I don't like going to a big church. I don't want to go to a big church. I don't like 
a huge church. Now, now, I know what they're saying with that, but let me tell you what that's actually saying. I like it the way I like it, and I don't care if other people go to hell. That's what that's saying. If we can keep it around 50 so that we can enjoy the fellowship that we have with each other, then that's wonderful. And we really don't care if we win anybody to Jesus. Every church should aspire to be a huge church. We want to see as many people saved as we can possibly get saved. We want as many people in as we can get in. Well, some people say, well, what, what about this? I want a happy church. I'm not that concerned about numbers, but I want a church to be happy. Well, I do too. I do too. And it's good to be happy Christians. I think Christians ought to be full of joy. And I do, I know we can say, well, happiness and joy are different for the sake of, of our alliteration. Let's just say they're the same. We want a joy-filled church. How about this? A lot of people, and especially people in the world, say what we want to see is the church that's a helpful church. But you know, people in the world look to see whether or not we're doing the work of the gospel. They're not as concerned about whether the church is huge or happy, but they're very concerned about whether the church is helpful, whether or not we're doing the things Jesus is called to do, whether or not we're giving to the poor, whether or not we're clothing the naked, whether or not we're feeding the hungry. The world is looking at the church to say, okay, back up. You say you've got the love of God, back it up in what you do. How about this? Do you want a holy church? Well, we should all aspire to be that, shouldn't we? Right, the Word of God tells us that we're to be holy, for our Father in heaven is holy. And I'll have to say to you that it concerns me that we are living in a day that the only way you can tell Christians from non-Christians is by whether or not they tell you they're a Christian. I think a Christian ought to live in such a way that when they finally get around to telling somebody, you know I'm a Christian, they say, oh, I know that. I can tell that by the way you live. In fact, it was St. Francis of Assisi that said, preach everywhere you go, and if necessary, use words. We ought to be holy. And not only holy, but how about this? Do we want a healthy church? Well, all of those are admirable things. But I want to take you through some pitfalls. First of all, if you put being a huge church, if that's your be-all, end-all, and that's usually not the be-all, end-all quite frankly, for members in the pew. That's usually more the concern of those that are in leadership. But if that's your be-all, end-all, then you just chase numbers, that can lead you to compromise. In fact, I, I have heard of churches that have, in order to get a crowd, have beer and hymn night. If we just want to get a crowd in here, all we got to do is have a kegger on Saturday night. We'll get a crowd, Right? If getting a crowd is the be-all, end-all, then it can lead you to chase after crowd and, and not become, listen, a lot of people don't understand these terms, but being seeker-sensitive is a good thing, or being seeker-friendly is a good thing, but being seeker-sensitive will lead people to say, well, we don't want to talk about sin, we don't want to talk about, uh, you know, the responsibilities that we have, we don't want to talk about, we don't want to run anybody off. No, it, just chasing numbers is not the answer. Well, what about this? Being a happy church. If that's what, we just want to all get along. We just want, all, want everybody happy, happy, happy. That's a wonderful idea. But here's the thing about being happy. Some people are happy being small. Some people, did you know that there are people you ride by their, their home and there's trash in the yard and the yard's overgrown and you go inside and there's, there, you know, there are stacks of things all over the place and the floor hadn't been scrubbed and the rug hadn't been vacuumed and there's dishes piled to the ceiling and they're happy. Happy as a dead pig in the sunshine. Just being happy doesn't mean that you're right, right? You can be happy when you ought not to be happy. And that can lead, as we talked about, to being people pleasers and buying into a, a consumer mentality and that kind of stuff. And then how about this? Is it a good goal to be a helpful church? Absolutely. But I'm interested in the social justice of the gospel, but I'm not interested in the gospel of social justice. Because there are churches that have turned their backs on biblical doctrines in the name of trying to help those that have been uh, maligned or disenfranchised by society. 
And it has caused them to abandon even the doctrines of the Word of God in order to try to just be people that are helpful. What about being holy? Well, certainly there's nothing that I can say against being holy. Well, no, there's nothing I can say against being holy, but there is something that happens when righteousness becomes self-righteousness. Yeah, I know bigger is not always better, but smaller is not always holier either. And there are whole denominations that are drying up and dying because they feel like if we can keep the sinners out, we can keep the church holy. We don't don't want to let any sinners come in because they'll mess everything up. We want to keep the decks on the ship clean so we don't want to catch any fish. When I worked at the Salvation Army, I had a lady that worked for me that uh, was the store manager, and she was wonderful. You'd walk in, and it didn't smell like a thrift shop. It didn't look like a thrift shop. It was neat. It was orderly. It was clean. It was well organized. It smelled good. But whenever uh, people would come in and shop, she'd get aggravated at the customers because they were there messing up her racks that were so neat. And the whole reason you kept the racks neat was to be appealing to the customers. You wasn't there to make it look good. You were there to sell clothing. That's what you were there to do. And there are people that feel that way. You know, Proverbs 14, 4 says, where there are no oxen, the trough is clean. There's not going to be any mess where there's no activity. You can say it this way. When there's no babies, the nursery's clean. Right? If we have a church that never gets messy, then something's wrong. If we, never, if we never have to teach people how to behave in church, that means we, we've only got people that know how to behave in church, and that means we've only got people that have been to church for the last 30 years. If we never have children that have to be trained how to behave in church, that means that we don't have new people bringing new children that need to be taught how to behave in church. Growth is messy. Now, we're not talking about compromise with the world, but we are talking about a mindset that says we're not going to keep it pristine. I've seen it time and again. You remodel a church, and all of a sudden, people are more concerned about whether we keep the church looking nice than they are whether or not we're using the building for the glory of God. And then there's healthy. We want a healthy church. Can I say this to you, that that's what we're at out of all of that? We're out of a healthy, we're after a healthy church because a healthy church, spiritually healthy church, will be a holy church. Holiness is, a, is an outgrowth of a healthy relationship with the Lord. A healthy church will be a holy church. And if you're really a holy church, you're not just interested in how you look and how you behave. You're interested in doing the things that God would do and that makes you a helpful church. You're willing to reach out and touch and help people in need. And this is the fact. If you're a helpful church, in other words, if you've got members that are busy about doing the work of the kingdom and helping those that are the least, the last, and the lost, that produces a happy church. Busy Christians are happy Christians. And if you're a happy church, then that becomes so attractive, it won't be long before you're a huge church. Now, it's the truth that not everything that grows is healthy. Cancer grows, but it's not healthy. But it's also true that everything that is healthy grows. Everything that is healthy grows. This young man up on the screen here, uh, his name is Nicky Freeman. Nicky Freeman has the body of a 10-year-old. But he's actually 40 years old. He's from Australia. TLC did a documentary on him called My my 40-year-old child. His condition is so rare that doctors don't even have a name for it. They don't even know what to call it. When he was 16, he had the bones of a 4-year-old child. Now he's 40 years old, and he's got the bone structure of a 10-year-old child. And he's got some other maladies, disabilities. He's blind. He's unable to speak. But this is what happens when someone doesn't grow. And if a church is not growing, it is a symptom of spiritual sickness. If a church is not growing, it's because it's not healthy. 
Because everything that is healthy grows. Now listen, growth means that there are going to be some awkward stages. I get so mad at my nephew Matt. Matt's a good looking kid. He was a good looking baby. He was a good looking toddler. He was good looking in middle school. He was good looking in high school. He's still good looking. Just aggravates the stew out of me. He and his wife Whitney, they actually, their wedding picture actually looks like the picture that comes in your wallet. Just look like models, just aggravate. And Matt's the only kid I ever knew that never went through an awkward stage. Everybody else got gangly, ugly, that kind of stuff. Some of you ain't even got out of that stage yet, but we're praying. But most people go through an awkward stage. And if a church grows, it's going to go through an awkward stage. It's not going to be, it's not going to look as good. It's not going to function as well. It may get a little clumsy every once in a while. And sometimes people are so resistant to the awkwardness of that stage that they don't even want to grow. Now, there's not any of us that have had children that didn't want our children to stay babies. Oh, I, I tell you what, if I, if I could spend $100, go back one day when, when Katie and Cameron were little and play with them like they were and I could still pick them up and throw them across the yard and that kind of stuff. Oh, I'd want to do that. But I couldn't keep them that way. That wouldn't be healthy. And so there's a time that we have to grow up. Now, what does a healthy church look like? What does a healthy growth look like? Well, first of all, the Bible says, and this is in our text, John 16 and 4, says that as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep. And that means that they were, uh, there was growth or they were growing in doctrine. A healthy church grows in doctrine. What we believe matters. Now, I don't have time to get real bogged down in this, but let me just give you a brief synopsis. Here's what was going on in the early church, the church book of Acts. God was saving Gentiles. And the Jewish Christians didn't know how to treat those Gentile believers. They didn't know, do you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian? In their mind, they were still Jews. In their mind, that what they were was, was still loyal Jews following Jesus the Messiah that had come and they were following him and they felt and knew and he was the fulfillment of what they'd been waiting on but they didn't have a broader understanding of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And when God started saving Gentiles, they thought, well, well they're going to have to be circumcised before they can be Christians. They're going to have to eat kosher meals and you know, stay away from, from uh, pork chops and ham sandwiches and, and catfish and shrimp and all of those things that are not kosher. They're not going to be able to do that. And, and there was a fight going on in the early church that some were saying no the Lord has made a new covenant and that new covenant all that other stuff is fulfilled in Jesus he took it up with himself and he fulfilled it and Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be Christians and finally they had to call a big meeting at Jerusalem the council at Jerusalem and though they got together, the apostles got together with the church at Jerusalem and they heard the testimony of Peter. They heard the testimony of Paul. They began to seek the Lord about it. And then they stood up and this is found in Acts 15, 28 and 29. And James, the Lord's brother, made this pronouncement. He said, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Ghost not to require anything more of those Gentile believers than these necessary things. They're to stay away from blood. They're to stay away from things offered to idols. They're to stay away from things strangled. And they're to stay away from sexual immorality. But it doesn't say anything like they got to go by the mosaic diet. I had a woman call me at 1030 one night several years ago at bedtime. Called me at 1030 and said, uh, what do you think about the mosaic diet? And I, I wanted to say, well, I think it could wait till in the morning, but I didn't say that. And there, there, are, there are people that get all caught up in what you can eat, what you can't eat. That spirit gets a hold of people. Now, you can, eat, you, you can follow that if you want to, but don't think it's going to get you into heaven. 
right? So the council of Jerusalem settled that issue, said we're not going to require that on them. We're not going to require them to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews, converts to Judaism to be Christian, but there are some necessary things we want them to stay away from. We want them to stay away from things offered to idols. We want them to stay away from blood, to stay away from things strangled, and to stay away from sexual immorality. And every one of those things were a part of pagan temple worship. And these pagan temples had become the social center and the business center of those communities. So you get somebody that is a, uh, a businessman and he's always gone to the pagan temple and that's where he conducts business, kind of like uh, the exchange club. That's where he makes contacts. But the church said, when you get saved, you're going to have to quit doing that. You're going to have to come out from among them and be separate. You're not going to be able to eat things that were offered in the honor of a false god. You're not going to be able to commit sexual immorality just because that's what they do at pagan temples. There were necessary things that you don't need to do. Now, here's where they grew in doctrine. The word decrees is actually the word dogma. It's one of the few words that came right to us from the Greek and remained the same. It's the word dogma. And doctrine, dogma, is important. It's important what we believe. It used to be if somebody moved from Douglas over to Albany, if they were Baptist in Douglas, they was going to find a Baptist church in Albany. People don't do that anymore. They judge a church by what kind of children's program it's got, what kind of music program it's got, how handsome the pastor is, whatever. But they don't look at doctrine. And thank God that people have gotten free from some of those labels. That's a good thing. But I'm going to tell you this. When people are not concerned about what the pastor's preaching or what the church believes, they're just concerned about what the church acts like and looks like, there's a problem. You need to know doctrine. You need to grow. And it's not good to be dogmatic. Dogmatic means to be to inclined, that to be uh, count certain principles as uh, inconvertibly true. In other words, you kind of put your convictions on par with Scripture. That's not good. But it is good in the old use of the word to be indoctrinated. That simply means to be taught. It's good to know what you believe. Not only did they grow in in uh, in uh, doctrine, but they also accepted discipline. They were determined by the apostles of elder and elders at Jerusalem. So, listen, submission to spiritual authority is important. Listen, spiritual, spiritually mature people submit. Spiritually immature people subvert. And there, there are actually people sometimes in churches that think that they're more spiritual than everybody else and they prove it by, I'm not going along with that. But it's the spiritually mature person that says, I'm going to submit even when I don't agree. In fact, listen to me, it's only submission when you don't agree. As long as you agree, there's nothing to submit to. You say, well, what if spiritual authority is wrong? You get down on your knees and you say, God help us. God help them. And you'll be surprised how the Lord will take, take spiritual authority to the woodshed. So they're to grow in doctrine. And second of all, they're to grow in faith. I, Acts 16, 5. So the churches were strengthened in faith. That word strengthened means to be established. It's the Greek word uh, stereo. It's where we get our word stereo from. Stereophonics means a solid sound. That's what stereophonics were. It was a solid sound. It, sound, it was a surround sound. God wants you to live life in surround sound. It's where we get the word stereotype from, stereotype. And that means a stereotype is when you put somebody in a fixed category. And that's usually a bad thing, but I'm going to tell you, it's not a bad thing to be a stereotypical Christian. It's not for us to look and act and talk like Jesus. What it really means is to be firm or solid. 
And, and here's, it's only used in the New Testament three times, all in Acts, once a year. Two times it was used in Acts chapter 3, whenever they were talking about the lame, as they were going into, uh, Peter and John were going into the gate called Beautiful. There was a lame man there, expected to receive alms. Peter said, look on us. And as the man looked to them, Peter reached down and took his arm and, and pulled him up. And the Bible says that his legs received strength. It's the same word that says the churches were strengthened. That's, that, that solidification, that, that receiving the strength to stand. And that's what the Bible says is that the early church, they grew in faith. That they had the faith to stand. They were standing in what? In faith. Now faith can mean belief. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please him. That those that come to God, Hebrews says, must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that did seek him. Hebrews 11 tells us that, uh, that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So we're to stand in faith. Faith is assurance. Faith is a reliance upon the Lord God. Faith is a conviction that the things that we know about Jesus are true and right and holy. That's faith. But not only faith, but also the faith. Jude said, when I want to write to you about our common salvation, it was necessary for me to write to you about the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We're talking about the historical Christian faith. We're talking about the fundamentals of the faith. We're talking about the fact that Jesus was virgin born, that he lived a sinless life, that he grew up and he died on an old rugged cross as the substitute for our sins and the sacrifice for our sins. That on the third day he rose again victorious over death, hell, and the grave. That he's ascended up to heaven on high and making intercession for us. And that one day he's coming again to receive us unto himself. That where we are or where he is there we may be also. Those are things that we need to be established in the faith. And then it also means faithfulness. Being established in the faith means being full of faith. Faith. Full. And you demonstrate your faith by your faithfulness. James said, you might try to show me your faith without your works, but I'm going to show you my faith by my works because faith without works is dead. You can say what you believe all day long, but if you're not faithful, if you don't have fidelity to what you believe, so the church grew in doctrine and the church grew in faith. And if we're going to be a healthy church, we've got to grow in doctrine and we've got to grow in faith but then finally they grew in numbers the bible says and they increased in number daily listen at what the term increase means it means to super abound to excel this word's used in Romans 15 13 where paul said we should abound in hope in fact paul loves this word second corinthians 9 80 says grace should abound in our lives Philippians 4.9, he said, love ought to abound in our lives. Uh, Philippians 4.12, Paul said, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. And in Romans 5 and 20, he adds a word to this word, hyper, which means where sin abounded, grace does super, super abound. Overabound. Abundantly abound. And it's used in Matthew and in Luke and in John where it is said that when, the, when Jesus fed the 5,000 besides women and children and they gathered up the fragments, the leftovers, there were 12 basketfuls that were left there. And John even says it this way. He said there remained in the baskets over and above. So this idea of increasing in numbers is that idea of over and above. It's not the idea uh, that uh, I, I don't have enough, you know, I've got too much month at the end of my paycheck. It's that I've got a surplus. I've got over and above. Listen to me. And I'm not, I'm not bringing condemnation to us. I'm just trying to tell us that God's design for the church isn't that we have to try to scrape around and find a Sunday school teacher. It's not that we have to call around and try to find a nursery worker. It's not that we have to beg the same old person to do one more job that they're already doing five jobs. It's that there are people abounding in the grace of God that we've got more than enough to go out and do what God's called us to do. 
God wants us to superabound with people. You say, well, do numbers matter to God? Does God care about numbers? Well, all I can tell you is he put a whole book in the Bible that's entitled Numbers, right? Do numbers matter to God? Well, how long did it rain in the days of Noah? How many apostles were there? How many loaves and how many fish did God feed the 5,000 with? Jesus feed the 5,000 with? Five loaves, two fish. In fact, how many were in the upper room? How many were saved on the day of Pentecost? 3,000. How many were saved a few days later? 5,000. Listen, even when it came to fishing, after they fished after the resurrection, the Bible says they caught exactly 153 fish. Numbers do matter to God. Does God really care about numbers? Well, I'm answering this way. God cares about people. God cares about people. And numbers represent people. It's not when we stand up and say, you know, we had five people saved in 2019. It's that they're are people, five people that aren't going to hell. It's people. God cares about numbers because he cares about people. Let me give you from a website some statistics. In uh, 2006, three million believers paraded through Brazil in the world's largest march for Jesus. The number of Christians in Indonesia has grown from 1.3 million 40 years ago to 11 million today. The Jesus film has been translated into a thousand languages and over 200 million people have, dedicate, uh, have indicated decisions for Christ. Up until 1960, there was no Christian allowed to live in Nepal. But now there's a church in every one of the 75 districts of Nepal. In A.D. 100, 100 years after Jesus, there were, only, there were 360 non-Christians for every believer. But today, there is only seven believers, or only one believer to every seven, or seven believers to every one. I'm sorry. The ratio today is less than seven to every believer as the Holy Spirit does more than we could ever ask for. In other words, there's one believer for every seven lost person. There are 500 Muslims that come to faith every month in Iran. There are 20,000 Africans every day that come to faith in Christ. Africa was 3% Christian in 1900, and now it's over 50% Christian. In 1900, Korea had no Protestant church. Today, 30% of, of Korea is Christian. There are 7,000 churches in Seoul alone, and several of these churches have over 100 million members. I mean, one, one million members, several churches, one million members. Every day, 50,000 people are served in Asia. Uh, there are 60 to 80 million Christians in China. Between 10 and 25,000 converts a day in China. If only one out of every six believers reproduced themselves, once a year, just in a few years, we would have won the world to Jesus. World Christian Encyclopedia says there's 2.7 million people that convert from other religions annually. 2.7 people that come out of some other false religion into Christianity. That sounds good. The problem is, is that there are 53.3 million people that die annually. Now, we got to grow in numbers because numbers mean people. But listen, we got to grow in the Spirit. Paul, as we close, Paul wanted to go into, uh, he was in Asia Minor, and he wanted to go into the outer regions of Asia Minor and preach the gospel, and the Spirit wouldn't let him. And he had a dream of a man over in Macedonia, that's Greece, that said in the vision, in the dream, come over to Macedonia and help us. And he took it that the Spirit was leading him to Macedonia. When he got over there, they went to the river and there was a woman who was actually from Asia Minor that was a businesswoman, a seller of purple, was there with some ladies. Evidently, Philippi didn't have uh, 
a synagogue and they were worshiping down at the river. Her name was Lydia. And they shared the gospel with her. She opened her house to her. She was a high class, high society person. As they began to go around Philippi, a slave girl that was demon possessed, that was a fortune teller, followed them everywhere and was pestering them. And Paul got tired of it and turned around and cast the devil out of her. When he cast the devil out of her, of course, the Lord set her free. So now there's a low class girl. They get thrown into prison because the people that owned the girl led a revolt against them because they had lost their money. That's how they made their money. It was her fortune-telling abilities. And they threw them in there. They beat them. Paul and Silas, within an inch of their life, they threw them in jail. And most of you know the story. At midnight, Paul and Silas begin to pray and sing hymns. And when Paul and Silas both were thrown in jail, they did not worry who would go their bell, but on the prayer bells, they began to ring and all fell the stocks and they began to sing. And as they began to worship the Lord, an earthquake came and rattled that place and their chains were, were broken, their fetters were broken, the doors were opened and the jailer drew his sword and was going to kill himself because all of them had escaped. And Paul said, don't do yourself any harm, we're all still right here. He took... Peter and he took Paul and Silas to his house and he began to wash their wounds and feed them. And he said, Sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? He said, You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your house. And that middle class blue collar jailer and his family were one to the Lord. Philippi became Paul's favorite church. The happiest letter in the New Testament is the book of Philippians to this church. And that church started when Paul didn't want to go there. <laughs> he wanted to go somewhere else. He got there. He'd seen a vision of a man bumped into a woman. But a high-class woman and a low-class slave girl and a middle-class jailer became the founding members of the church at Philippi. That's growth in the spirit. It's important for us to have plans and procedures and policies and all of those kinds of things, and we need that. We desperately need those things. But I'm going to tell you what results in growth in doctrine and growth in faith and growth in numbers is growth in the Spirit. And that's why we're a Pentecostal church. We believe that the Spirit enables that. And that's the way to grow a church. Now, how many of you want to see our church grow stand? If you want to see our church grow stand. If you want to see it grow in doctrine, if you want to see it grow in faith, if you want to see it grow in numbers, if you want to see it grow in the spirit, lift your hand. Okay. Now you know how that happens, don't you? That happens whenever I grow. Whenever you grow. Oh, I'm, I'm growing, and that ain't the kind I mean. I'm talking about in our spirit. If I'm not maturing, then the body of Christ has a sail that is stunning its growth. It's not just enough that those around me are growing. I've got to grow. I've got to let the Lord mature me. I've got to let the Lord do a work in me. His last sermons, we've asked the question, what would it look like if somebody wrote the actions of the Holy Spirit through the church at West Warren? But maybe I need to ask the question, what would it read like if somebody wrote the acts of the Holy Spirit through Brit Peake? The acts of the Holy Spirit through Coleman Peacock. The acts of the Holy Spirit through Greg Luke. The acts of the Holy Spirit through Gilbert Hernandez. Because why? While it sounds good to talk about what the Lord is going to do in the church, 
Church is just made up of us. If it happens in us, it happens in the church. In fact, the only way it's going to happen in the church is for it to happen in you and me. Everybody remember this old saying, the best way to have a revival is draw a circle and step in the circle and say, now Lord, revive everything in this circle. How many is willing to draw a circle today and say, Lord, help me grow so your church will grow? Let's pray together and then we're going to open the altar. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we're asking you to touch us today. We're asking you to bless us today. We're asking that the Holy Ghost of God would speak to our hearts. Oh, dear Lord, this is not a message, Lord, that leaves us hopeless. This is a message of hope. That, Lord, the early church was just people just like us. God, they had their, they had warts and all. They had their problems. They had their strengths. They had their weaknesses. They had their petty jealousies. They had their prejudices. They were just people just like us. But they were people that were willing to be putty in the hands of an almighty God. They were people that were willing to put themselves in your hands and ask you to work in them and ask you to work through them. And Lord, that's what we are. We're just people. We're not superhumans. We're not superheroes. Lord, we don't have extraordinary abilities in and of ourselves. But what we have is we have the Holy Ghost of God, the presence of God living on the inside of us. And we're asking you, God, to change us, to shape us, to mold us, to make us, oh God, to grow us, Lord, in faith, oh God, to grow us in your spirit. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, if you're serious about that, if you're serious about that, I want you to.